Welcome on in to Studio 2. I'm Avi Wolfman-Aaron. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Avi, after intense backlash to her recent testimony about anti-Semitism on college campuses, including big donors pulling support, University of Pennsylvania President Liz McGill officially announced her resignation this weekend. The debate about free speech in academia is not new, but since the October 7th Hamas attack on Israel and the ongoing war, tensions are high at universities across the country. In just a few minutes, Claire Finkelstein and John Zimmerman, both Penn professors, join us to discuss the role of college administrations in policing free speech. You can get your emails in now, studio2 at WHYY. And later this hour, we're talking about the OED. Yeah, you know me. All right. That's right. The Oxford English Dictionary and the crowdsourcing effort that led to its creation. Fascinating stuff. But before we get there, some news from Center City, Avi. Yeah, some business news that Mm -hmm. could become some basketball news down the line. So Philadelphia-based shopping mall operator Pennsylvania Real Estate Investment Trust, P-R-E-I-T, was the operator of the fashion district Mm -hmm. in the market east part of Center City. They filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. It's the second time they've actually done this. Um, But this filing included the selling off of some assets, including the fashion uh, district mall that the Sixers want to take part of and turn into an arena. They've sold it now to a Santa Monica, California-based developer. And so the question when this happened is whether it would affect the future of this proposed project. Um, the Sixers spokespeople have said it will not affect what they plan to do, um, but the property is going to be under new ownership. Very interesting development. And of course, you know, what stood out to me about this story is also that P-R-E-I-T, this is the second time in three years that they filed for bankruptcy. Not going well. Yeah, not going well there. And they own a number of malls, including Cherry Hill Mall. Yeah. And so to me, it also stood out um, in addition to whether or not it's going to impact the Sixers arena, just how it's how malls are doing post pandemic. Right, right. I mean, those shutdowns, I know I have not really shopped in person. I haven't done any in-person shopping for the holidays. Everything Zero. is online. Yeah, and it just it just goes to show, you know, how are these malls going to re- be repurposed? Will they turn them into arenas? Will they turn them into experiential places? Yeah. But, you know, this sort of that's like a red flag the second time in 3 years that this mall owner you know, filing for bankruptcy. So we'll see what happens. Can't say I do much mall shopping myself. That was true before the pandemic in my case, but it remains the case. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So we'll see what happens there. Um, another kind of wait and see, something we were kind of waiting on. Steve Sweeney, former New Jersey Senate president, made headlines. He announced that he is running for governor of New Jersey in 2025. This was not a surprise because this campaign was expected. If you recall, he was Senate president from 2010 to 2022 Mm -hmm. and lost in a major political shakeup in New Jersey. We were both watching this election night. (laughs) Uh, He lost to Ed the Trucker Durr back in 2021. Ed the Trucker Durr? Yeah, I did. Okay. Because he was a truck driver and he ousted Sweeney, this longtime guy. Um, In his campaign for governor, you know, Sweeney says, you know, he touts his credentials as a union iron worker, longtime legislator who worked to pass minimum wage, indexed to inflation and paid family leave. He also was part of a number of other very important measures. Um, and, you know, Democrat Jersey City Mayor 
Stephen Fulop is also running for governor, and he welcomed Sweeney into the race, and he's kind of linking him to former Governor Chris Christie. Because they, they worked were, together, yes. Yeah, so it's going to be an interesting race. You got North versus South Jersey. A lot more to come on this race that you mentioned. It's 2025, still, still a ways off. Mm-hmm. The question, of course, for Sweeney, uh, he's got name recognition. He does. Uh, he was got connections. He was very mm-hmm. powerful. Can he move his image past this embarrassing, shocking, upset defeat uh, to Ed Durr in 2021? Yeah, that was embarrassing. Yeah. I, mm-hmm. Well, look, it, 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 it went national, too. It went beyond New Jersey. Yeah, so I think there's a question of sort of can he recover there? And then on the other side, you have Republican uh, Jack Chitterelli, who gave uh, oh, Phil yeah, Murphy yeah, yeah. a really strong mm-hmm. challenge in the last gubernatorial election. He'll be back for round two, presuming that he makes it out of the Republican primary. So uh, some big names already lining up there. And, and be, you know, Jersey politics, something to watch. Off your elections. Off your yeah. elections. They're still, uh, they still mm-hmm. come with the heat. Uh, Golden Globe nominations are out, Cherry. We just wanted to mention this yeah. uh, briefly. A lot of folks with local ties are nominated this year. Can I read some of them? Yeah, give, give me the list. Okay. Coleman Domingo mm. is an Overbrook High School grad. Shout out West Philly. Shout Majored Overbrook. in journalism at Temple. Really doing some of that uh, uh, journalism degree. Okay. Coleman Domingo is nominated for his performance in the motion picture drama Rustin, which okay. is about Baird Rustin, who is from... Westchester, Pennsylvania. Yeah, so two local true. ties uh-huh. there. Uh, Bradley Cooper, All Abington right. Township B. native. <laughs> nominated for acting and directing <laughs> in the uh, biopic Maestro. Uh, more praise for Quinta Brunson, Abbott Elementary, uh, nominated for Best Comedy Slash Musical oh, Series. Mm-hmm. Um, Philly-born Temple grad Divine Joy Randolph, Best Supporting Actress for the film The Holdovers. I did not know she was from Philadelphia. She yeah. plays a, a recurring role in one of my favorite shows, Only Murders in the Building. Ah. And I, I, I really liked her performance in that. No idea she had Philly ties. So mm-hmm. good for her, Divine Joy Randolph. There are some others. Bruce Springsteen is up for a song. Um, and then, you know, outside of Philly, you got Barbie, Oppenheimer, Succession, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, I, I'm really I'm this is I love this time of the year because you love Golden Globes. Too? I do because my TV movie and streaming um, list is thereby thereby created. <laughs> it and I actually have some time at the end of the year to watch some of these. So I'm looking forward to that. Rustin, I got to watch it. It's, you know, is that out yet? it's out. It's it on out. Netflix. Okay. It okay. keeps popping up and I haven't had time. So I'm going to watch that. And by the way, um, I'm a huge Lenny Kravitz fan. His song from Rustin, um, it's, it's a ballad called Road to Freedom, also nominated. I did not know you were Yeah, so I, I am. Song. So, like, I follow him on Instagram. If you don't, you should because it's divine. Anyway, so um, all of that <laughs> to say. <laughs> all of that to say. And as we wrap up this 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 chat, I got to sh- shout out some. Um, not Divine Joy Randolph. Divine no, in a no, different way. To- totally divine. Uh, one of the best lighting displays in the country is in Philadelphia. Yes, it is. Yeah. USA Today's Reader's Choice listed the top 10 public holiday lights, and it includes the Miracle on South 13th Street, which is number 10. South it's Philly, all baby. the homes along the 1600 block of South 13th Street. Been there. It's beautiful. The neighbors went all out to bring extra Christmas cheer to the city of brotherly love. They have the Grinch, the Philly fanatic all on display. There's a holiday train. Avi, you got to take the baby over there. I'm not kidding. We were there yesterday. <laughs> Are you serious? I'm not kidding. Yeah. Oh my uh, God. I go every year. It's like, well, 
This is don't I don't need any pats in the back for that. It's like three blocks from my house. <laughs> okay. So you walked over. Yeah, I run into it regardless of whether I want to be there. It is always funny every year, though, because, it, you know, it's a block of row homes and you can't like mandate participation. And you could tell there's like two or three people every year that don't want to do it. And they just put like nothing up. Or this year, there's someone who just put up a Grinch. <laughs> and just up. said, this is my contribution. <laughs> this is my contribution. So you could see some neighbor dynamics, too, which I don't know if you get that with other light displays you can see some of that south philly friction <laughs> coming through so but it is a really nice light display and I, I go every single year and it's right by my house and my favorite one is there's someone that goes oh. all out with depictions of the national lampoon a christmas vacation movie they do like a whole theme around that every year oh i uh, love that movie by the way that's yeah, all my it's very christmas funny. list and they make a lot of their own like ornaments it's very cool Shout out to that person, whoever you are. And shout out to Bruce Springsteen on this song. Yeah, this is his Golden Globe-nominated song. Coming up next, we're going to talk to two Penn professors about the issue of free speech on college campuses. Don't go anywhere. This is Studio 2. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. And welcome back inside Studio 2 in Philadelphia. I'm Avi Wolfman-Eric. And I'm Cherry Gregg. University of Pennsylvania President Liz McGill, along with Board of Trustees Chair Scott Bach, resigned over the weekend. This came after months of criticism and McGill's house testimony about combating anti-Semitism on campus last week which included this exchange between McGill and Republican Representative Elise Stefanik. I am asking, specifically calling for the genocide of Jews, does that constitute bullying or harassment? If it is directed and severe or pervasive, it is harassment. So the answer is yes. It is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. It's a context-dependent decision. That's your testimony today. Calling for the genocide of Jews is depending upon the context. That is not bullying or harassment. This is the easiest question to answer yes, Ms. McGill. So is your if testimony it, that it, you will not answer yes? If it uh, is, if the, yes speech or becomes, no. if the speech becomes conduct, it can be harassment, yes. That testimony almost certainly led to McGill's ultimate resignation, making her the shortest tenured president in Penn's history since that position was created. But her testimony was also very likely Mm -hmm. accurate. Penn's student code of conduct says that, quote, student speech or expression is not by itself a basis for disciplinary action. That would probably mean calling for violence or genocide could, depending on context, be protected. Should it be protected? That question didn't really come up in that exchange, but it's the question that we're going to try to tackle today. And joining us now are Claire Finkelstein, a professor of law and philosophy at Penn, and Jonathan Zimmerman, professor of history of education, also at Penn. Welcome to Studio Two to both of you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. This issue is so much bigger than Penn, though. What speech should be protected? Make your case. Email us, studio2 at org, or you can call us right now, 888-477-9499. We've got about 20 minutes total for this segment, so get those calls in early if you do want to join us. Um, I want to start with you, uh, Claire Finkelstein. What was your reaction to the now infamous exchange between 
former President McGill and the representative from New York. Look, I have a great deal of respect and affection for Liz McGill. Uh, I had the opportunity to work with her on campus in the selection of our wonderful provost, but I must say that I was shocked to hear the testimony. Uh, To my mind, she got the legal standard for pen, so legal in quotes, uh, exactly backwards. Um, We are not bound by the First Amendment as a private institution, but we are bound by Title VI. And Title VI, which binds any institution that receives federal funds, requires that we not create a hostile environment for our students. So any situation in which we have students calling for genocide of any group on the basis of ethnicity, race, or religion religion ought to be a situation in which we are calling security and escorting those students off campus. This is not a situation that can be tolerated on Penn's campus or on any campus, nor need it be tolerated. John Zimmerman, uh, same question to you. Yeah, I I have enormous respect for Claire Finkelstein, but I also have a different perspective from her. Um, uh, I'm extremely concerned about what's happened in the past week because the, the fact is, the empirical fact, people define a genocidal statement differently. Um, I don't know about Claire, but I have not heard anybody on the Penn campus or anybody stand up and say, we should have genocide against all Jews. However, I have heard people say, from the river to the sea, Palestine shall be free. I've heard them say, globalize the Intifada. And I understand that there are some people that interpret those statements as calls for genocide. I'm not saying they're wrong, by the way. What I'm saying is I don't want Liz McGill or Claire Finkelstein or John Zimmerman to be in the position of determining what is so awful and so genocidal that nobody can say it. Yeah, and and I want you to respond to that, Claire, in some regard, because there is a lot of confusion around what exactly is a call for genocide, especially when you're using terms that people disagree or have different viewpoints about what it actually means. So So let's start with the hypothetical that was put. Okay, so it was a hypothetical, a call for genocide, right? And and at one point, in fact, there was a demonstration on Penn's campus that was incorrectly reported on social media as the students saying, we want Jewish genocide. But why don't we put that as a hypothetical? Can we agree that that's not acceptable on Penn's campus under our, our just speech clear, This codes? didn't happen. It was it reported to happen. happen. But, 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 right. but, but it was as a hypothetical. You're saying as, as a hypothetical. hypothetical. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. as a Look. hypothetical. And then we can get into the question of the interpretation of different slogans and whether or not they're the equivalent of a call for genocide. But that's a secondary question. The first question that we need to be morally clear about is whether or not calls for Jewish genocide or the genocide of any other minority or anyone on campus is acceptable under our speech codes. It's actually a very simple question. And if we can't address that, I don't see why we need to start getting into questions about the interpretation of more uh, subtle issues around what's equivalent to genocidal slogans. Yeah. So, uh, John Zimmerman, uh, let me get your response to that. Let's imagine that what Representative Stefanik uh, said happened definitely did happen. Which it didn't. Mm-hmm. But but let's imagine. Right. Because she did sort of amend her question as she went along yeah, and sort of said, well, if uh, calls for genocide of Jews, but any group, let's just say any group, 
um, should that be tolerated free speech on campus, or should it be context-dependent tolerated? Well, look, here's the thing. Let us also remember that the statement that Claire's describing was an inaccurate statement. That is, it didn't occur. But I take the point about the hypothetical, right? And my point is, I don't want anybody, anybody atop the university deciding what is so heinous and so awful that nobody should be able to say it. The answer, if that were to happen, which, You're by the way— talking about pure speech here, not mm-hmm. harassment, just pure No speech. action, just Correct. somebody Correct. saying words. Yes. Right, right. Um, if that were to be said on campus somewhere, which, again, it wasn't, but if it were, the answer to that is not a new speech code. The answer to that is for every decent human being to raise their voice against it, which, incidentally, is a form of free speech. And I would argue the most important form of free speech at this moment. That is the freedom to raise your voice against hate. Media speech with speech. speech. That's that's your argument. That's free speech. And so I I do want to zoom out and sort of get both of your general, because we understand now your reaction to the testimony and what it should have been. But I want to get your framework for what uh, the balance between free speech on campus and creating this safe environment should look like. And Claire, I want to start with you. What should what should this balance look like in your right. eyes? And, and let me just first respond to Jonathan's point about, you know, who is going to judge the judges, right, is in effect uh, a point. Um, and, and let me ask you a question because um, university administrators have to make all kinds of judgment calls. Yeah. What counts as plagiarism? What counts as sexual harassment? Um, what counts as a valid um, curriculum for an English department, right? What counts as um, sufficient uh, work to count as credit towards a diploma? And right, so, so why not make certain judgments that feed into the safety and well-being of our students as well? So like why right? draw the line so there? So why, is, why is speech the only thing that, that we are concerned yeah. about our administrators on campus making a judgment about suddenly everybody's terrified when it abuts free speech issues, but we're fine if they make all sorts of other judgments, which they have to do on a daily basis. Well, first of all, the ones that you enumerated, Claire, most of them are academic judgments, right? And um, we have academic systems in order to decide, to take your example, what should be in the English curriculum. Um, I see this free speech issue as something that isn't just purely academic. Mm-hmm. You know, I see it as something that is integral to our citizenship. Um, uh, it seems to me that, you know, we're at a moment, I'm going to show my partisan cards a little bit here, where the putative candidate of one political party has said that he's going to ignore the Constitution. He's made several statements about that. And Um, I think especially because of that, um, it's hugely important for those of us who believe in the Constitution to abide by it. Um, uh, The Constitution allows terrible and heinous things to be said. Incidentally, the Constitution doesn't allow anybody to determine the English curriculum, right? That's up to the English department. But it isn't or it shouldn't be up to the president of Penn or me or Claire to decide, you know, 
who on campus can say and can't say something so horrible that and we've got the to The Penn has also that. decided not to honor the Second Amendment on campus, right? So we don't honor the Constitution across the board. And it's also an educational mm-hmm. decision that having unfettered speech bordering on threats and harassment is going to impair the educational mission of can, the can university. Can we get to that? Actually, I, I would really love to get to that point mm-hmm. of, of whether if you created codes around speech— um, would it foster a, a better environment for dialogue or could it backfire, right? Because I think there's arguments right. both ways. And I think, yeah. Yes. Well, see, I'll, I'll go, see, I'll go we, John first and then we'll yeah. get to you. Yeah. We, don't, we don't have to do hypotheticals here okay? Um, uh, because we have a history, right? We have a history that directly addresses Avi's question. Here's the history. Um, in the late 80s, the University of Michigan enacted a speech code And what the speech code said is that on campus, you can't use words or gestures that discriminate against or stigmatize somebody because of their race, gender, sexuality, religion, social class, and so on. Let me be really clear. Um, I think the people that enacted that code and the people that want to restrict hate speech on campus today do so from the best of motives. I do not question their motives. They want to eliminate something that's heinous. I get it. uh, but motive and outcome differ, and that's the story at University of Michigan. What happened was within the next 18 months, about 20 African Americans were penalized for violating the speech code, including somebody, a black person, who used the term white trash. Now, I would not myself Saying call the that a racist perverted, statement. Is what you're, is what exactly. You're, okay. And then Penn, you know, Claire's right. There's a difference between public and private institutions. So that code was actually overturned by a federal court, which said, by the way, the problem with the code is it puts the university in the position of deciding what's hateful and what isn't. All right. But Claire's absolutely right. Um, that, it, that, that governs public institutions, not private ones, which have a lot more leeway and have exerted it. And here the history is really important, too. Penn had a speech code as well. It was in most uh, ways similar to the Michigan one. And here's what happened. In the early 90s, a student who happened to be Israeli was trying to get some sleep. And outside of his window, there was a sorority, mostly African-American women who were having a party that he said was keeping him up. So he opened up the window and he said, shut up, you water buffalo. If you want a zoo, there's one up the road. Now, the student was charged with violating the code, and what he argued was that in his native language, Hebrew, water buffalo just referred to like an insolent person. It wasn't, it didn't have to do with race. Didn't have racial undertones. Yeah, and eventually he was exonerated, and, and after that, and this is really important, Penn got rid of the speech code. Not because we don't care about hate speech, not because we embrace anti Semitism or racism, but because we understand as a matter of history that once you go down this road, it will lead you to places you don't want to be. So, That's what happened. It's what happened flow. at Michigan. It's what happened at Penn. Yeah. It's going to happen again. Well, so so let me make clear. We're not talking about a hate speech code. I, I really want to clarify that. We don't have to go back to the days of the hate speech code in order to be compliant with Title VI of the 1964 Civil so Rights Act. So describe their framework. We already, and I want to also make very clear that I'm speaking in my own capacity here and mm-hmm. not as a member of the Open Expression Committee uh, that I sit on. Um, But we have open expression guidelines uh, on Penn's campus, 
And my only assertion is that those guidelines and the university's decisions in general need to be compliant with federal law. And right now, federal law is Title VI. And the centerpiece of Title VI is the point about hostile environment. So right now, the University of Pennsylvania is being sued by two Jewish students over their the university's um, arguable violation of Title VI, um, that the university has behaved inadequately in trying to protect those students from the effects of a hostile environment. Uh, we have seen this on campus after campus in growing astronomically. The impact of anti-Semitism, uh, bef- it was true before the attacks um, on October 7th and since October 7th, the number of these incidents has just exploded. Uh, according to uh, statistics uh, put out, I believe, by the ADL, we have an increase of about 400 percent so in your, the number of that, anti-Semitic incidents So is your idea that when something like that happens, so we're talking a current development, sort of current event development, that sort of the, the standards should shift in response to that? It's not a shifting set of standards. It's what you, what the university has to do in order to ensure that the environment is not hostile so that all students have the equal benefit of an education at the University of Pennsylvania and at all other universities. What do we have to do to ensure that all students have equal access to the educational opportunities? That's what the Civil Rights Act was all about across the board. You're saying, depending on what's happening in the world, there should be some kind of, so Penn should have done what? I'm so to... we, if we interpret our guidelines through the lens of Title VI, we, we would say, for example, that calls that were this hypothetical to mm-hmm. be true, were there to be a call for Jewish genocide on campus, we would shut that down. We would say that is unacceptable speech. We would expect leadership to make clear we will not tolerate calls for violence on our campus that is that creates at a minimum it creates a hostile environment depending on the context it may rise to the level of harassment or incitement and we will not tolerate it we will not tolerate the glorification of violence you need to have your you need to express your political views but it's the glorification in, of violence in, in all contexts or or because of something that happened in in the world my Follow- own so then this is a matter of degree this is a matter of choice and i do trust university administrators to make reasonable judgments uh though of course it's not going to be perfect my own view is that universities should not tolerate the glorification of violence across the board. Can, can we get a hypothetical here, actually, from one of our, our mm-hmm. listeners? This is Sammy via email. If a student says, I think Israel should not exist because the Palestinian people are the owners of the land, is that protected speech or is it a call for genocide? I'll start with you, Claire. I don't. I think one uh, one university administration is going to have to make these decisions. But by my book, that would not be a call for violence, mm-hmm. because you know, um, I think it's uh, it, wrong. I think it's potentially inflammatory. But not all inflammatory speech is a call for violence, right? So so universities do have to tolerate 
uh, a lot of political speech, and a lot of political speech is going to be contentious on campus, but not all of it is going to be the kind of speech that university administrators will want to rule out as actually fomenting violence and creating a hostile environment. And I, I have to jump in here because, and I think, John, you make this argument that Penn has had an issue with double standards. They, you know, Penn will punish certain types of speech, uh, specifically racist speech, anti-black, anti-Asian speech, but not necessarily punish uh, anti-Semitic speech um, in the same way. Is this, I mean, John makes a, a very valid point here in his argument. Is this the main problem is that there is no standard that Penn tends to pick and choose versus there being a real problem with the student code as it is. It is a problem. It's not the only problem. It is a problem because, in fact, we don't follow the First Amendment. We may say we follow the First Amendment, but if you look at our actual behavior, the picking and choosing suggests that we don't actually follow the First Amendment. This might be a point that John and I can actually agree on. Now, you've, written, you've written as such, John, in a recent op-ed. Mm -hmm. You basically said that there is a hypocrisy around definitely, enforcement definitely. of speech standards right. at places like the place that you work. Mm -hmm. Right, right. No question. At Harvard as well, right? But my position is the answer to a double standard is a single standard. It's free speech. Mm. It's not to start erecting new rules and new controls because that isn't going to work. We've, we've tried it. We keep trying it. You know, I respect what Claire Finkelstein is saying, and I share her objectives, you know, and they make sense. But um, every act of censorship turns out to, um, uh, uh, to boomerang on you. You end up regretting it. And the reason is, you know, we don't have the wisdom uh, to make the kind of judgments that Claire wants us to make. I mean, I was writing down some of the things, and she said in response to the hypothetical in my book, dot, dot, dot. And although I respect Claire, that's not enough for me. People are going to have different books. That's the point of the universe. You don't trust the content of these books, these individual <laughs> books. Yeah, I'm not saying anything bad about hers. Right. I'm just saying we're going to have different books. And, and uh, you know, the, the Foundation for uh, Individual Rights in Education ranked Penn 247th out of 248 when it comes to protection of free speech. And I got to ask you, why was this the issue, do you think, that Penn was willing to express this type of outrage and 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 sort of put all this ire against the president when when there have been other free speech issues at Penn. What made this so much different? Yeah, I mean, it is uh, interesting to have spent, you know, 23 years at the university in numerous contexts dealing with open expression issues, um, academic freedom issues. I've chaired the Senate Committee on Academic Freedom. I've been a chair of the Faculty Senate. I've dealt with these issues for years and years and years and spent years dealing with things like microaggressions and um, worrying about, um, uh, you know, students feeling hurt and traumatized and things that are subtle. And suddenly we're talking about calls for Jewish genocide and the response is free speech. So it is a kind of stunning response in a situation in which all across the country we have Jewish students actually being physically harassed. And the idea that we can draw the sharp line, that we're going to have, you know, robust and even violent speech, hate-based speech, and tolerate it, tolerate it, tolerate it, tolerate it, and oops, now it spills over into conduct, 
um, and we can catch it right at that point, and we can um, still have a robust and well-functioning educational institution um, and let the speech go right up to the point of violence and only stop it then, I think, is a fantasy. And, and i got to ask this one quick question. We only have up. one minute. Yeah. Is donor influence here? Because donors were the main uh, leaders of this push. You you didn't see big protests by students all over the country on this topic. In terms of getting rid of McGill. In terms of, yeah. of getting rid of President McGill. How big a deal was donor influence here? And should should donors yeah. have that much influence? Let me, let me address that. Seconds, let yeah. me address Sorry. that if I may. Um, there's been a lot of resentment about this, but a, uh, the donor influence, let's remember a lot of them are members of the board of trustees. And under our open expression guidelines, they have open expression rights too. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that this is outside influence is a, a little bit unreasonable. Real quick, I think. John Zimmerman. Yeah, I mean, I, um, I'm Jewish. I'm an advocate of Israel. I think Claire probably is too. And I'm just wondering, isn't anyone worried that if the um, war in Gaza continues, some people call genocidal. No, I don't, but some people do. Isn't there any worry on the part of people calling for these controls on speech that somehow that's actually we, going to be used against people that support the war in Gaza? We'll leave it there. Thanks to you both, an enlightening conversation on Studio Two. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Well, every person you can know and every place that yeah. you can go. Well, hoedown feel here at Schoolhouse Rock. <laughs> Thank you for the intro. This is Studio Two. I'm Avi Wolfman Eric. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Love that. When you need to look up a word, you probably find the definition online in seconds instead of flipping through a very heavy book that goes from A to Z. You know what they're called. Dictionary. But respect if you do that. Yeah. <laughs> For over a century, the Oxford English Dictionary has been the authority on the English language today with over 600,000 entries. So how did the OED catalog and define half a million words? In the dictionary, people, Sarah Ogilvie tells the story of the book's creation. It was a massive crowdsourcing effort. Mm. Think Wikipedia, but a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Volunteers across the globe mailed slips of paper with words and definitions. And these people weren't linguists or scholars. They were just people who wanted to be a part of this great endeavor. They included suffragists, history buffs, even three murderers. Mm. I recently talked with Sarah Ogilvie about how the OED came together and the unsung heroes behind it. I don't think many people understand how a dictionary like the OED is actually put together. How do you find and define basically every word in the English language? So how did the folks who edited the OED go about doing that? They basically looked at published sources and looked at how words were used in the real world. And so in the middle of the 19th century, when they came up with this radical idea of creating a dictionary with every word in the English language in it, they were smart enough to realize that a small group of men in London or Oxford couldn't do that alone. So they decided to crowdsource it and they put out an appeal and asked people all around the world to read their local books and write out quotations from those books and send in words 
And they asked them to write those quotations on little slips of paper, on four by six inch slips of paper. When they first asked people to do that, they had no idea as to whether this would be a success or not, but it turned out to be a great success. So many people sent in words from their local places and they sent them to Oxford to James Murray, who was the chief editor to his house at 78 Banbury Road. So many people sent in slips of paper and words to him that Royal Mail put a red post box outside his house, which is still there today. And that's how the dictionary was created. They're not uh, relying on that little red uh, <laughs> post box anymore. But uh, the idea undergirding all of it is still the same. And it's so interesting that it's a crowdsourcing volunteer effort. Why do you think they were able to convince people to do this free of charge? Well, the interesting thing is I wasn't able to answer that question until I found out who all those people were. And I've, I used to work as an editor on the dictionary and I therefore was really bowled over by how many words were in that first edition from outside of Britain, from America, from Australia, where I'm from, from New Zealand, Canada. And it really surprised me because I realized that there must have been people in all those locations sending in words, but we never knew exactly who all those pe people were until Eight years ago, I was exploring down in the basement of Oxford University Press here in Oxford, where the dictionary archive is stored. And I came across this dusty box. I took the lid off and inside was this little black book tied with cream ribbon. And when I undid it and looked inside, I immediately recognized the immaculate handwriting of James Murray, that chief editor who was the longest serving editor. And in this book, he had listed the names and addresses of all those people around the world, every book that each person had read and the number of slips per book that they had sent in. So as I looked at this, I suddenly realized that this was the key to us understanding who all those people were. And I want to get into and, some of those people. Yeah. But before we do, okay. I want to talk yeah. about James Murray. He was the editor from 1879 uh, until 1915 when he died. And he is in many ways representative of the volunteers. He was self-taught, left school at age 14, was not a member of the academic elite, which might surprise people because we're talking about the Oxford English Dictionary. How do you think That's Murray right. was representative of the people um, who ended up helping him with this great endeavor? That's such a great question. And the answer to that came to me as I was researching each of them, because the majority of them were not these scholarly elites. They, they were like Murray. A lot, lot of them left school at 15 or 14. They were autodidacts. They taught themselves. And I think that this project attracted them because it was attached to a prestigious university and it gave them access to a world of learning and a prestigious world, a scholarly world that they were otherwise denied from. So for example, there were so many more Americans than we thought, then there, there were so many more women as well. Mm -hmm. And this was of course a time in history where women were denied equal access to education. So this I think was a way for them to use their brains and their intellects in a more scholarly way and to take part in, as I said, a world, a world that they were otherwise 
excluded from. Yeah, they're peering in the gates of this great university, and they just want to be part of something great. And you mentioned earlier, Mm -hmm. a lot of women were involved, including a lot of suffragists. What was it about the project that you think appealed to women? And why was the project willing to, you know, hear women's voices? Is it just because, hey, they needed, you know, anyone who could contribute? Or was there something philosophically, you think, that made Murray and others sort of open to women's contributions? I think that it really stems back to the founding of the dictionary. It was founded by three men who who had this very radical vision as you say, of democratizing access and asking people from all walks of life to contribute to it. The OED wasn't the first crowdsourced dictionary. In fact, they were following in the footsteps of European dictionaries, especially the German dictionary, the Deutsche Wörterbuch. But the smart thing about the Brits was that the Deutsche Wörterbuch had crowdsourced their dictionary, but they only asked scholars and therefore That German dictionary took 176 years to complete, whereas the Brits decided to open it up to everyone, and they managed to finish the dictionary in 70 years. Unfortunately, of course, James Murray devoted his life to working on the dictionary, and he died in 1915 before the dictionary was finished, and therefore he died actually working on the letter T, and he therefore didn't know that his life's work would ever be finished, but it was eventually 13 years later in 1928. And I think when we look at the women, we see these very intelligent women. Many of them are living as spinsters in the countryside of Britain. But I mean, there are fantastic women like Mrs. Anna Wetherill Thorpe, who lived in of Phil- Philadelphia. Phil- yes. Let's talk about her. Um, anti-slavery activist. I believe she sent in some words like abhorrent in, in abolition and some others. Um, what made her contributions significant to you that you drew them out in the book? Uh, absolutely. So what you find is that with many of the people, there are some who who believed in certain causes and made sure, therefore, that their words got into the dictionary. And Mrs. Anna thought Wetherill was definitely one of one of those. But there were other women and people who wanted to specialize in a particular genre of literature. So there was a woman in New York, for example, who read Little Women and um, her favorite authors, you know, such as Louisa May Alcott, and she sent in thousands of words from her novels. There were other people who read American literature and specialized in that. So different people had different um, motivations. There, There was an incredible doctor who lived and worked at a military base in New Mexico called Dr. Francis Atkins, and he specialized in books relating to Native American cultures and sent in a lot of indigenous words, all of which made it into the dictionary. So what was really radical is that even though we think of this dictionary as prototypically British, actually there were thousands of American words I'm speaking with Sarah Ogilvie, author of The Dictionary People, The Unsung Heroes Who Created the Oxford English Dictionary. You mentioned this earlier. A lot of people worked on this project their whole lives, and I think they knew that they weren't going to see the completion of it. I want to read a quotation from a letter sent by Wendell Phillips Garrison of New Jersey, near here, 
to Dr. Murray. He says, from my dying bed, dear Dr. Murray, I send you a last and long farewell. I can do no more in the nation for the cause, the work, the Bible of the human race over which you preside. Boy, I'm trying to imagine what about this project made people like Wendell Phillips Garrison feel that strongly about it, knowing that they'd probably never hold the complete thing in their hands. That's so true, Avi. And especially I think of the top contributors. So we have an Englishman called Thomas Austin, who was very difficult for me to find out information about him, but he sent in 165,000 slips. And uh, the next highest contributor sent in 151,000. So these pe these are people who devoted most of their waking hours to this project. And what is interesting is that the, the top four contributors all had connections with psychiatric hospitals, which were called lunatic asylums back then. And when I traced them on the censuses, there was a special column for what were called lunatics. And often beside these people was written lunatic. And I don't think that they were mentally ill. I think they were probably just on the spectrum, which I consider myself also on the spectrum. And they were judged as lunatics back in the 19th century. But they were definitely devoted to this task and obsessed, I'm sure. <laughs> Uh, the dictionary is completed in 1928, at least the first version of it. And, of course, high society turns out, and I think the prime minister is there, and there's a BBC broadcast and all that stuff, which I guess in some ways is evidence of, you know, Murray's ultimate victory. Like, here, here, here's the, the hoi polloi are, like, you know, fetting this, yeah. this great work. Uh, but then you also feel a little bit like, oh, man, they're kind of taking credit <laughs> that it's all done. Um what did you feel about that moment, that moment of completion in, in 1928 as you were reading about it? It was quite a poignant moment because unfortunately there were very few dictionary people invited to that dinner. Also, none of the women were allowed to dine or to go to the dinner. There were three women who were what's called skied. They, they were allowed to sit up in the balcony in the grand dining room where this grand dinner was taking place at the Goldsmiths Hall in London. As you mentioned, the dinner and the speeches by the prime minister were broadcast on the wireless. And I can just imagine that the dictionary people who were still alive then and had given so much of their lives and time and years to this task were probably tuning in from their homes. And I hope that they were feeling proud rather than feeling that they were left out. As we wind down, I want to note there are still dictionary people, and you profile a man named Chris Collier from Australia and contributed slips from his home in Brisbane, right? That's right. And Brisbane is actually my hometown, but when I grew up there, I had no idea about him. It wasn't until I went to work on the dictionary 35 years ago that I would open the mail and every month would be these bundle of slips from this man who lived in my hometown. They were eccentrically wrapped in cornflake packets with bits of dog hair stuck on them. And all of these slips had one thing in common. They were all from the Courier Mail, which is the local Brisbane newspaper. 
So this man over a 30 year period sent in over 100,000 slips and I got the opportunity to go and meet him. He said, uh, come and meet me in my office, he said, which is this park behind the Paddo Tavern, which is this pub in Brisbane. I went to meet him and uh, there he was sitting on a park bench reading, of all things, the Korea Mail newspaper. And we sat and spoke for several hours and I said to him, we would love to bring you to Oxford to show you the workings of the dictionary and to thank you for your contribution. And he thought for a moment and then he said, oh, but I couldn't possibly just imagine all the career mails waiting for me when I got home. Mm. And, so, and when I did. so fascinating. Yeah, yeah, it is. And when I did an analysis of all the words that he sent in, there is this bias now within the Oxford English Dictionary towards the Courier Mail newspaper. There are more quotations from that little regional newspaper than there are from Virginia Woolf or T.S. Eliot. It's amazing. And this guy's personal scriptatorium was the park behind the pub. And, you know, I think it was. Yeah. And it's yeah. amazing to and think of those little spaces all over the world. I mean, literally all over the globe where people did this work day after day after day. And you write that this has been a story of ordinary people doing extraordinary things in the name of recording the English language. And it does show you something about what human beings are capable of when they work together and they work, mm -hmm. you know, in a dedicated manner on something for a long, long time. You can do incredible things. We can, and it's such an inspiring story, and it's so great that you get that, Arfi. Yeah, it's wonderful. <laughs> that was Sarah Ogilvie, author of The Dictionary People, The Unsung Heroes Who Created the Oxford English Dictionary. Fascinating, excellent interview, Avi. Thanks. You learned something? I learned something, and it makes the creation of Wikipedia seemed much more reasonable than just, <laughs> I used to be like, why are all these random people just writing these? But that's how the dictionary, that's how the OED was created. Can I just say before we go, we did not get a chance to properly thank and say goodbye to John Zimmerman oh, and yes. Claire Finkelstein yes, yes, from yes. Penn. And I they thought were great. they were great. It was a really interesting conversation, mm -hmm. a respectful conversation. And I feel like we could do a lot more on that. We need to have them. We need to the expand the discussion in the future. Yes. Our that producers. Our show. Debbie Builder, Paige Murray Bessler, Andreas Copes, Adam Staniszewski is our engineer from Studio Adam. 2 at WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Avi Wolfman Arendt. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Thanks, friends, for joining us today. <laughs>